0: Hello and welcome to Threshold's How to Work with Humans series here with me Nikki and for this episode we are focusing on performance under pressure and I'm really pleased to say that I'm joined today by Tom. Tom is actually a client of ours. And he's been working on his ability to turn around highly stressful situations and how to perform under pressure during times of change. So hello, Tom. Hi, Nikki. How are you? Very good. Thank you. Thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. And I'm also pleased to say that I have James here with me. James is one of the directors of Threshold, um, who's been working with Tom on some of the methods that he could use. So hello, James. Hello really lovely to have you both here. Before we get started, Tom, could you just tell everybody what brought you to want to work with Threshold?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, Well, it was during the early weeks of lockdown. Um, I'm actually getting stressed thinking about it. But uh, I was taking a lot of Zoom calls with clients. And on this one particular call, I faced a a very unhappy client. Um, Something hadn't been done that they were expecting. Someone at our end had dropped the ball. Um, I was under a lot of pressure and I thought, you know, I could do with some support around this.
0: Okay, Would would I be right in thinking that part of the pressure as well was having to work from home... Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And adapting to that changing environment. Yeah. Yes, yes. And that's very common for so many people. And I hope you don't mind me saying that also having family at home, homeschooling.
1: Yeah, exactly. A, exactly. a lot
0: to um, take on board. <laughs> Completely. OK, so something that I've learned recently from James, actually, is something that's becoming increasingly relevant given the way in which the world is now. And that's something called VUCA. And I know this is something you've been working with James on. Mm-hmm. So could you, could you tell me a bit more about that?
1: Sure. Um, so VUCA stands for Volatility, Uncertainty, Complexity and Ambiguity. Now, in our roles, we're always dealing with complexity and ambiguity. Complexity, you know, there's all, always so many moving parts and ambiguity. There are always multiple ways to view a situation and multiple different interpretations. What's new are volatility and uncertainty nobody would have thought 2020 would turn out the way it did.
0: No, certainly not. I mean, that's a fair point, isn't it, James? I mean, what, what does social psychology tell us about the way we react to unexpected events?
2: Well, it's interesting. Most of us figure we're pretty smart and we understand the world is volatile and uncertain. But here's the thing. We way underestimate the likelihood of what are sometimes called black swan events. Black those...
0: swan events? So oh, I haven't heard of that.
2: Right. So black swan events are those events that, that aren't currently on our radar... You know, those real outlier ah. events. So uh, let me explain what I mean by that. At the start of 2020, Nikki, if you'd asked most people what's most likely to shut down our way of life, they probably would have said, you know, the usual list of suspects, a global financial meltdown, a terrorist attack. But very few would have said a sub parasite.
0: No, certainly not.
2: So it's similar to the situation we work with with Tom. He was expecting his day to go in one direction then suddenly, he's knocked sideways by the unexpected. And the more volatile and uncertain the world is, the more we're likely to be hit by those unexpected events.
0: I see. So we need to learn methods to deal with the unexpected.
2: That's right. Top performers tend to be better at staying on track or recovering when they're hit by setbacks or problems. And that's grit, right? That's right. Now, grit, the ability to stay on track in spite of setbacks, that's really important. We all know that. But with Tom, we were working on taking that a stage further.
0: Okay, so let me ask you, Tom, what did taking it a step further mean to you? Well, it's really about the ability
1: to actually raise your performance under pressure, not simply to withstand pressure. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is that some people actually welcome pressure and use it to leverage greater performance. And this was the idea of reappraisal.
0: Okay, reappraisal. So, so James, this is about choosing to look at your stress responses differently, right?
2: That's right. Reappraisal is a really important concept in performance psychology right now. So the body's autonomic responses to fear and excitement are almost identical. In both cases, the hypothalamus takes over. The the functions of the brain are uh, short-circuited, um, it fires up the adrenaline system. Um, what we actually experience is that sensation in our organs and on the surface of our skin. Because this tends to be instant and automatic, we're then in a cycle. The mind takes a reading from the body and then surveys the landscape to decide whether we're anxious or excited. So imagine that big presentation at work, Nicky, um, <laughs> to that Tough audience. Your heart's racing, your stomach's tingling, your mouth starts to go dry. When I make me anxious. Exactly. (laughs) Most people see this as a time to start trying to calm down. But that might not always be the most effective strategy. So top performers will often welcome those stress signals and simply remind themselves that they're gearing up for that performance. Mm,
0: That's interesting. So hold on though, you're not saying are you that Being calm is for wimps.
2: Well, not exactly. If we're constantly in that state of what we might call high sensory elevation, we're going to burn out pretty quickly. Our bodies will always be pumping cortisol or adrenaline. And
0: that's not a good thing, is
2: it? Not a good thing. That leads to burnout. Or you may have seen what's often known as the stress curve. You know, we get to that point of exhaustion. Mm. Um, So one of the phrases that's used a lot in performance psychology is that idea of controlling that degree of sensory elevation. So it's not a bad thing to have elevated senses, um, but it's more about understanding what phase you're in and being able to go from that, if you like, that anxiety box to that excitement box. Mm, Interesting.
0: So, Tommy, it's okay to be calm, right? Absolutely, that's right. And, And interestingly,
1: this is one of the things I've been working on. You know, I welcome those responses and I remind myself that I'm gearing up for a performance, but I also work on putting myself in that calm state. Mind at rest, if you like.
0: What So you're talking about things like meditating, mindfulness, I don't know, staring at the candle?
1: (laughs) Well, I'd mentioned before, that sort of thing never worked brilliantly for me. But what has worked is taking up rock climbing again. So I get out into the countryside when I can, but also there's a great climbing wall near us. Now I've rejoined my old club, and I'll try to get down there a couple of evenings a week.
0: Okay, so James, hobbies and distractions can work as well as, say, I don't know, mindfulness meditation...
2: Right, again. Now, I should say it's not either or. They both have their benefits. But there are some really interesting studies at the moment that suggest that people who have hobbies tend to perform better at work.
0: Oh, that's interesting.
2: Yeah, um, there's a recent study by Dr Chiara Kelly and her colleagues at the University of Sheffield Institute of Work Psychology. And this study showed that devoting more time to your hobby can boost your confidence in your ability to perform well at work. There's one caveat, though... Mm. And this is this, is that your hobby has to be sufficiently different from your work. If the two things are too similar, and, interestingly, if your dedication to your pastime is too extreme, then the effect can actually be detrimental. So in other words, Nikki, keep it fun and don't take it too seriously.
0: That that is interesting, actually, because often... Because we want to do, often, you know, well at work and get ahead. We tend to choose things that are related in in some way. And I definitely know, for me, is that I have been doing, like, cycling. I'm sure that's a big thing that so many people have taken up. And it has really helped just kind of release that stress. Mm. So how does that fit, though, with things like mindfulness? I mean, that's such zeitgeist at the moment isn't it yeah. i hear it all the time in the workplace
2: it is and with good reason so let's be clear there is certainly a wealth of evidence for the benefits of mindfulness meditation but we shouldn't underestimate the benefits of hobbies or simply distractions books movies etc whatever works for you and of course remember we're a social species there's increasing evidence that social contact just boosts that health and happiness and longevity, actually, Nikki, in a measurable way.
0: Mm, it's interesting. So, Tom, we're saying it's not that one state is better than the other, it's just about being better at transitioning between states when you have to.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. You know, one of the interesting things that I've been working on is the idea of the red spot, which the is about red having... Spot. Red spot, mm. Yeah. Um, It's about having a symbol that gives you a shortcut from getting from the mind-at-rest state to clutch performance state. The golfer, um, Louis Usterhusen, uses it to help him to concentrate on his swing in the crucial moments leading up to a shot. In fact, he ended up winning the Open Championship at St Andrews in 2010. And he simply had a red spot on his glove. Oh,
0: you literally do mean a red spot. Yeah,
1: (laughs) Yeah, it does what it says on the tin. He'd look at it when he needed a change in his mental state. So it allowed him to move from mind at rest between playing holes to being in a state of clutch performance before playing a shot. Ah. Yeah, and so this allows you to preserve your mental energy but switch it on when you need it. Now, I don't use a red spot. I use a picture of my hero, uh, Roger Federer, but it does oh, the same tennis thing. tennis
0: player, good choice. Yes, yeah.
1: yes.
0: So, James, the red spot, that, that sounds really interesting. Well, what's the science behind this?
2: Yeah, and of course, it doesn't literally have to be a red spot, as you say, Nikki. It could be, but really any sort of visual symbol okay so performance psychologists are increasingly turning their attention to these similar kind of mind training tricks if you like uh and they really help people to transition between those states that we talked about now it might involve mem you know sort of creating imagery that allows the performer to rehearse a game in their heads or Often psychological blocking techniques that stop them from dwelling on past mistakes so you don't get into that um, downward spiral. The red spot idea came from Carl Morris. Um, he's a Manchester based sports psychologist and he was asked by Oosterhausen to help him improve his concentration before starting his swing or after a number of sort of disappointing results um, that he'd had in previous golfing events. Now, it's this ability to focus on the task at hand that's one of the key techniques that sports psychologists try to refine when they're dealing with, you know, professional sports people. Um, It's often said, you know, there's a lot of evidence that the best performers have a lot of psychological skills that really allow them to concentrate and to control their anxiety. So here's the thing. Know when you are best putting your mind in a state of calm or rest but set yourself some physical or mental rituals to switch on when you need to. So that red spot on Oosterhausen's glove was one way of focusing his mind on the process of playing a shot, rather than thinking of the past consequences. It's a classic example of what's known as a, here's the thing, a process goal in mm. sports psychology. So
0: process goals, what, what's that then, Tom? Yeah,
1: process goals. So we talked about the difference between process goals and outcome goals. So your instinct is to focus just on the outcome goal at the expense of everything else. You're anxious and you're psyched up, you know, you just want everything to be okay right away. And that's when your head gets flooded. What you need is to break goals down into simple steps that can be achieved. Right, what's the next thing that needs to be done?
0: Okay, that's a really interesting idea. So can you tell us a bit more about that, James?
2: Sure. Well, one of the things that always sticks in my mind, in basic training for Navy SEALs in the US... The toughest part is the underwater test.
0: That sounds... I don't know what you're going to tell me, but it sounds hideous already. It sounds like a nightmare, (laughs) doesn't it?
2: And it is, and that's the point. The trainees are underwater with, you know, all the scuba diving equipment, when they're trainers, I mean, <laughs> there's no other way of putting this, literally approach them and, and attack them, basically. They do things like oh. rip off their masks, um, tie their tubes in knots.
0: Oh, my goodness. Yeah. That's so, so
2: horrendous. You can imagine. The failure rate was about 75%.
0: No wonder.
2: So that's not good. So some analysis was done to look at what it takes to succeed in those high-pressure situations.
0: And what did they find?
2: Well, here's the key. The key is to stay calm and focus on what's in your control and break down the goals into small steps. So it's a case of, okay, right now, I just need to secure my mask. Now I need to detangle this bit of kit. So none of us are going to face those sort of situations, or at least I hope not not precisely. (laughs) But we can learn a lot from this about how to turn those situations around when we're under pressure.
0: Okay, so we need to sort of have our brain and body geared up and also have our minds thinking clearly.
2: Yes, and that's the difference between us and our ancestors for most of our evolutionary history. The threats that they faced would have been physical. Now, the brain is the body's most resource-hungry organ, so resources are directed away from the brain towards its extremities.
0: Okay, so Tom, remind us what you've been doing to lower anxiety then when you're under pressure.
2: Well, what worked for me was a
0: method
1: used by performance psychologists to help performers to get out of their own head and get the focus back on the world around them. I breathe, I see, I hear, I notice. And it's then about breaking the situation down into simple steps or process goals, thinking, okay, what needs to be done? I used that acronym that we talked about. I think it's something they use in the military in a crisis situation: stop,
0: think, options, plan. I also recall that you said you tended to be a catastrophizer, which was a a, a new word for me.
1: (laughs) Yeah, what that means is, um, well, when you're under pressure, a whole load of thoughts tend to flood your mind. So this is going to go from bad to worse. I'll lose my job. Here I go again. I always mess up. This always happens to me. I learnt that all of those are really not helpful. You have to separate these thoughts out and put them to one side.
0: Okay. so what did
1: you try? What worked for you? Well, a really useful one was the facts and stories exercise. Now, as soon as I got off that call I mentioned, Mm. my head was flooded with thoughts. So this exercise was about separating out the facts of the situation from the story or what I was making it mean. So it's a case of taking a piece of paper and writing down the facts of the situation on one side and my story on the other. I split the facts into what I know and what are still unknowns. And then you start to realise that when you're under pressure, you can make things so much worse by building a whole lot of interpretation into situations instead of focusing on facts.
0: I love that idea. It's so simple, isn't it? Mm. Literally, that pen and paper, that thing of writing Tangible as well. Thing, yeah. yeah I, I really like that. So from that call, you had quite a challenge, you know, a problem to solve in a very short space of time. So tell us also what you learned about the most effective way of approaching it.
1: Well, I actually learned something really interesting about myself. Now, I know I'm tense because I've got this big problem to solve. So I'm firstly going to have to find out why is this problem occurred? Then I'm going to have to try to find some way of solving the problem. Then I'm going to have to address all of the MDs together I'm going to have to calm them down. Then I'm going to have to talk through my diagnosis. Then I'm going to have to talk through my solution in a way that wins their buy-in. All of this is going through my mind, so I'm pumping adrenaline. Now, at this point, the advice is usually calm down. But that's never really worked for me. Mm, You mentioned that. Exactly. You know, I've tried the deep breathing. I've tried, as you said, lighting a candle. I've tried meditating. But my head just kept going back to the thing I've got to
0: fix. So what I learned was you can approach this in a different way. Okay, so what kind of things can you do then? So James, I think there's some interesting stuff around this.
2: Yeah, it goes back to that idea that we talked about earlier of reappraisal. So Mm -hmm. choose to see the situation differently. You're still in a state of high sensory elevation. You're, You're pumping cortisol and adrenaline. You want your body's geared up, your mind's geared up, you want to solve the problem. What we talked about is how does Tom move from that, again, that anxiety state to that excitement state. Mm. Now, in that state of high sensory elevation, um, but positive thoughts, I want to go for this kind of thoughts, um, that's sometimes called excitement, but it can also be called something else, clutch performance. Now, clutch performance is a state of very high focus and high sensory elevation. Let me explain what what I mean by that. You probably heard the term flow. Now, the term flow has been around for quite some time, and it's most associated with a psychologist called Csikszentmihalyi from Claremont University. And he originally coined the phrase. So flow is a state of high performance that becomes almost effortless or automatic. So Musicians, for example, they sometimes say, you know, they have the sensation that the instrument starts to play them rather than the other way around. Now, that's flow. But performance psychologists have increasingly become interested in that other area of high performance um, that other, if you like, high-performance mental state, clutch performance. And clutch performance is about a state of high sensory elevation um, at, the, at the same time, very high focus. So I often think about it this way. Think of the ice skater gliding effortlessly across the ice. That's flow. Okay. Now, think of that ice skater getting ready to do that triple-axle jump. That takes clutch performance.
0: Oh, I see. So, Tom... Clutch performance, how how did that work for you then?
2: Right, so to solve the problem,
1: to address the MDs together and win their buy-in, this was going to take clutch performance. Rather than focusing on calming myself down, I chose reappraisal to see the situation in a different way.
0: And what do you find helps when you're trying to get into that state of clutch performance?
1: Well, I really like saying that I worked with James on, and that's the three Cs. Control, challenge and commitment. So the first thing is to look at what's in your control. Now, anxiety often comes from feeling out of control. So to come up with a plan, first you have to look at what elements of the situation you have control over. This in itself helps me to shift from negative high sensory elevation to positive high sensory elevation. I challenge myself to think about where and how I can exercise control over this situation, even if it's only in a small way. Then you've got challenge. I chose to treat the problem as if it were a challenge from which I could learn, I could grow, test my strengths and abilities, instead of feeling afraid, burdened or threatened. And finally, there's commitment. Enjoy committing to the challenge. You've set yourself this challenge, so now you go flat out for achieving it. And once you commit 100%, even if it's a
2: small thing, you're going to feel strangely energised.
0: So so where does the idea of the three C's come from, James?
2: Mm, Well, this was from uh, Dr. Suzanne Kubasa-Oulette, and she's a researcher in stress at City College in New York. Um, And she identified that people who cope effectively with stress, they typically display three characteristics, which she calls the three C's, control, challenge and commitment. And as Tom was saying, it's a great way to get yourself out of that state of anxiety and into that state of clutch performance. And also remember... When you're under pressure, that critical voice will be going in your head, telling you that it's all going to go wrong. What we worked on with Tom was a method to reverse that and get into a state of high performance when you need to. And Tom, what what
0: was that? What did you try?
2: We tried the stock take of my resources. So this works well
1: with the three C's exercise. I find I already have that critical voice in my head telling me everything's going to go wrong. This really helps me to neutralise that. It helps me to think clearly, and it boosts my sense of confidence that I'm going to meet the challenge. What I do is I list all of the resources that I have available to enable me to meet the challenge. I use this framework. I am, I can, I have.
0: OK, so James, stop take of resources. A lot of people find this useful, do they?
2: Yes, uh, it comes from a psychologist called Edith Grotberg. You list all of the resources that are going to enable you to succeed in a given situation. And to prompt your thinking, just use the framework I am I can, I have. So it might be, I am I am warm, I am personable, I am highly experienced, I'm a very meticulous uh, or I am a qualified, you know, whatever it might be. I can, I can reach out for help, I can think creatively, I can apply logic, I can diagnose how a problem happened, I can delegate more of my work. And then of course you've got the third, I have, I have a great network, I have contacts in the business, I have a wealth of experience, I have a team to support me.
0: I love this, because this is, again, something that you physically write down. And research does show, doesn't it, there's something about the writing down that does actually really help.
2: Exactly. And write it down, read it and dwell on it.
0: Ah, I like that. So what's different for you now, Tom? What's working for you? I've been
1: working on making sure that the things we've been talking about become my go-to response when I need them. Almost like it's muscle memory. Mm. So, to recap, I no longer fear mistakes or things going wrong because I have a ritual that I go through which is becoming more and more instinctive to me. I get out of my own head and stop unhelpful thoughts circulating by taking a breath and then I see, I hear, I notice, I check myself for unhelpful thought distortions and neutralize them by applying logic. There's the acronym we mentioned that they use in the military. Stop, think, options, plan. I reappraise If I'm noticing stress responses in my body, I welcome them. And I remind myself, that's just my body gearing up for performance. I ask myself what I control, and then I reframe that as a challenge, my plan. And then I enjoy committing to that. And then finally, I do a stock take of my strengths. I am, I have, I can.
0: I love that. So do you have that literally stuck up? I have, I there? do. Oh. It's
1: in my home office now. That is printed above my computer.
0: Fantastic. So I guess that then any phone call that comes Thanks in, any exactly. unexpected Zoom call, you've, you've got it there. Take a breath
1: and follow it down. I
0: really love that. Oh, thank you so much, Tom. This has been really, really interesting. I've learnt a huge amount. Thank so, you. So, Yeah, thank you for coming in. And thank you so much, James, for sharing all these really fascinating you know, the research from psychology. I have, a, I have a lot of food for thought myself now. So I'm going to leave you with this final thought. What are your new rituals going to be? Thank you for listening.